The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is, as always, a joy to be with you today as we welcome Mrs. K. Coles-James. Mrs. James is the founder and board chair of the Gloucester Institute. You'll hear more about that institute during the show. Mrs. James has an extensive background in crafting public policy. She has worked at the local, state, and federal levels of government under the administrations of former U.S. Presidents George H.W. Bush, as well as his son, President George W. Bush. Today, Ms. James is the president of the Heritage Foundation, a think tank dedicated to formulating and promoting conservative public policies. We are grateful that she is on the show today. For those of you who are new to The New Activist, welcome. This is a podcast that really gives us the opportunity to hear from multiple voices on multiple sides of issues, and all of us in this journey together are moving forward in better understanding and informing our own activism. And so today, this show, like all shows, we will walk together in understanding the perspectives of others and the hopes that ours is more fully realized and activated. It is an honor to be on this journey with you. And so, with no further ado, here is our guest, Kay Coles-James. First, thank you so much for being here. But the first question is, you founded the Gloucester Institute, which is, uh, actually, could you explain and share a bit about what the the Institute is? Because it's really spectacular. Well, certainly. Um, When I was a little girl living in the public housing projects of Richmond, every summer, my uh, aunt and uncle, who were quite middle class and unlike my mother and our family, who were quite poor, would come and get me and take me to this magical place uh, in a in a area of Virginia called Capahosic. And I remembered it as a child as a beautiful place where the grown-ups talked and debated the important issues of the day. The food was fantastic. I would play on the floor with my dolls and read books while the conversation happened around me. And as an adult, I wondered, what was that place and whatever happened to it? And so I did some research and found out that the place was the Moton Conference Center in Capahosic, which is located in Gloucester, Virginia. And during the days of segregation, when African-Americans couldn't go to resorts or conference centers, this is where the intellectual cultural and social elite of the black community gathered. And Mm. I was taken along as the poor kid from the projects (laughs) to be uh, a companion for my cousin, whose father was a doctor. And uh, as an adult, I wondered what happened to that place. And so I researched it and found out that uh, it uh, had fallen on disrepair Uh, While it was on the National Historic Registry, um, 
it it really was not cared for or maintained. And uh, I had what I call my gone with the wind moment where I said, as God is my witness. And my husband and I formed an organization, (laughs) purchased the property, restored it, and restored not only the bricks and mortar, but also the mission of the, uh, the property, which was to be a gathering place for thoughtful people to solve the important problems of the day. And I realized that young people on college campuses had not learned how to have public discourse, how to do critical thinking. All we knew how to do and all they were doing was yelling at each other across social media. Hmm. So we restored the mission of gathering thoughtful people to debate and discuss the important issues. And then we rapidly discerned that we needed to teach the college students how to do that. Um, So we started teaching critical thinking. We started teaching how to dissect an argument. We started teaching how to listen and how to engage. And it became a place of training future leaders for this country. And so I, I sort of bypassed our current leadership and said, let's go to college students and take them to this magical place and uh, work with them on how to have civil discourse and to solve problems. I mean, the history of this place, as I was reading through it, I mean, the moments that have happened there are truly historic. Among them, Dr. King spent time there writing. And so this this place that you have founded and and refound has turned into a place for, as you said, just intellectually safe and stimulating conversation. I'm curious... Uh, in the midst of all that is happening now, what have you been hearing from these young scholars and leaders who are processing uh, both the pandemic as well as the social realities of the day? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I am so pleased that we were on the front end of this and mm. that there we have now trained well over a thousand young students, many of them uh, who are now into their professional careers, hmm. who, who can rise above the rhetoric, rise above the bumper stickers, rise above the tweet wars, <laughs> and have conversation. Um, the only thing I do on social media these days mostly is food pictures and grandkids social media is no place to really try to have a conversation or a discussion. Hmm. And these young people now know and understand that. And so, you know, we developed our own language there at the Gloucester Institute. Um, One of the first things I say to the classes is I don't care if you're a liberal or conservative, a Republican or a Democrat. The only thing we don't do here is stupid. (laughs) <laughs> so you must that's, be that's a good must, bottom line i like that <laughs> absolutely uh, i don't i don't care what you believe as long as you've thought it through and are willing to have a discussion a conversation or even a debate about it uh but you can't shout rhetoric and bumper stickers without being thoughtful and so what's been interesting to me is um the relationships that have formed uh, that go uh, cross cultural lines, cross racial lines, 
across religious lines, ethnic lines. Uh, and so even while we are disturbed by the mayhem in the streets, the Twitter wars that are going on, the friends that are being blocked on Facebook because of disagreements, Beyond all of that, there is a cadre of people who are really trying to have substantive conversation, who are really trying to listen and to try to understand. And we call those people solutionists. So I don't care if you're a solutionist Democrat or a solutionist Republican. I'm interested in having conversations with people who really want to solve problems. Yeah. I Speaking of which, in people that are sol solving problems, you are also the president of the Heritage Foundation, which, should anyone uh, not know, is a think tank uh, dedicated to formulating and promoting conservative public policies. I'm curious how your work with and the, the, the individuals in the Heritage Foundation and its incredible power have been responding to the recent outcry over the murders of so many Black Americans? Well, I'll tell you, this has been an interesting time for us. Um, I have the privilege of uh, leading an organization right now that is filled with some of the most intellectually sound, uh, some of the most thoughtful, some of the smartest people on the planet. So why not put them to work on solving some of the most complex problems that our nation has ever faced? Hmm. And so for that reason, uh, we formed the Coronavirus Commission to say, how do we go about saving lives and livelihoods? And so we have been focused on that. And we've also tried to speak into this moment with the racial unrest that's going on in our country. And it's been quite an interesting experience. Um, I sincerely believe that as a conservative, many of the, uh, the problems that people feel compelled to take to the streets about right now are problems that we have the solutions to. But we <laughs> as conservatives have not spoken to those issues. We have not spoken into them, or if we have, uh, we have not been believed because the rhetoric is so um, uh, polarizing right now that the minute yeah. you say, I'm a conservative, then I don't want to hear anything you have to say, or That's I'm right. a liberal, right. I don't want to hear anything you have to say. And mm -hmm. so we have to get beyond that. Uh, the problems are, are, are too uh, complex and this nation too important. Uh, for us not to be able to engage with one another. But I'll, I'll tell you, I, you know, I have been shocked at the vitriol. I have been shocked on both sides, far, far left and far, far right. Um, and I think it's time that people who are of goodwill uh, step up and um, take over the conversation. There are certain people that you just can't negotiate with. Antifa and the Black Lives Matter organization, not the Black Lives Matter movement. They're two different things. We can talk about that. Uh, yeah. Are so You cannot have a conversation or negotiate. You cannot have a conversation or negotiate with people who are um, on the far, far right in this country, and they can't be moved. They don't want to listen. They don't want to engage. So I think that says that those of us who really want to solve problems, who are 
are are have solutions. Um, one of the things that I think as the president of the Heritage Foundation is when I see people taking to the streets because they want justice and equality, that is at the bedrock of conservative values and principles because we sincerely believe in individual freedom, individual liberty, and human flourishing. Uh, when they want to see the education gap close, I've got the data and the research and the analysis to show how to do that. If you want to provide better access to health care, we know how to do that. Um, and so at, at a certain point, people have got to set aside uh, their slogans and their talking points and say, let's roll up our sleeves and really solve problems. Yeah, because you did offer this point, I, I am curious about the follow-up with your distinction between the Black Lives Matter movement and and the organization. Can you help? Because I've this is that's new to me. Can you help make that distinction ah, for me? Yeah. Well, ab- absolutely. Um, I would encourage anyone to go to the website and look at the Black Lives Matter organization. Hashtag Black Lives Matter organization. There you will find an organization who has right on their webpage things that I think many of your listeners would find uh, reprehensible. Uh, they don't believe in family. They think it's a patriarchal thing and we should uh, get rid of families. They think that um, um, they want America to disassociate itself from Israel. They say in uncertain, no uncertain terms that they are Marxists and they want to see a socialist and Marxist agenda in this country. It has nothing to do with saving black lives or recognizing the importance of black lives. So they have sort of hijacked um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and uh, the organization is is a far cry. So you have to make that distinction. And um, I have an op-ed that just came out recently that sort of outlines that and makes that distinction. And I think people should know and understand that. You can believe that Black Lives Matter without supporting the Black Lives Matter organization, which I don't think we should. It is the antithesis of what we believe as Christians and uh, what we believe as conservatives. Well, then let's talk a bit about the movement, because the Black Lives Matter movement has gone from this organization and a hashtag to something that, uh, you know, at least symbolically, is being it's, it's being painted on streets of major cities all around America. The Black Lives Matter movement has grown into something very, very large. I'm curious what you do think the 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 that movement and what it's become, especially in the past two months, is accomplishing or possibly not accomplishing in America. Well, um, we all know that Black Lives Matter. Uh, Anyone who is a student of history and understands uh, what are uh, some of the things that would cause an individual to um, to feel the necessity for making that statement. We know it's a focus that needs to take place. Uh, let me just give you one example that came about as I was studying 
and doing research and history on uh, Robert Russo Moton, whose home is at the center of the Gloucester Institute. Um, it was the Great Flood, and I think it was 1927, and the levees broke in, um, in, uh, down in Mississippi and in the Delta. And they sent in uh, uh, the, um, the boats to save the families. Black families were not saved. Uh, they were told to hmm. stay and work. And there was one gentleman, the story is of one gentleman who had worked two shifts, came home and said he was exhausted. And literally he uh, was pulled out of his home and he was shot. And when the boats came to rescue people, they only rescued uh, the white uh, 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 folks who lived in that community. And I said, you could just hear them standing on the levees as the boats were pulling away saying, but Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's important for people to understand that there is a historical uh, record of why there is a compelling reason to sort of make that statement right now. And it isn't just concerning uh, what's happening with a few bad police officers. I believe that the majority of our police officers are good. And, and I was taught, and I believe to this day that we need to support uh, our, our, our folks in uniform. Uh, our family even lit up our house in blue just to demonstrate our support for the police officers and to make a distinction between a few bad apples and uh, the folks who put their lives on the line every single day to protect us. Um, there is a distinction there, and sometimes that distinction is lost. But by golly, those people are some of the finest Americans who put their lives on the line for us, and we should support them. So there's a big... The, the unfortunate thing about where we are right now is that the rhetoric is so intense that people will take any comment that you make um, and take it out of context. I've had that happen to me recently. And if you say, yes, I believe Black Lives Matter, then you will find folks who say, oh my gosh, you're a racist and you don't believe all lives matter. Of course I believe all lives matter. And on mm -hmm. the other side, if you make that, it's, it's just such a heated environment right now. And I'm encouraging people to stop, think, listen, process, and uh, don't allow anyone to inflame you to the point that you cannot have a conversation and you cannot hear what people are saying. You wrote an op-ed for Fox, uh, uh, Fox News following George Floyd's murder. And in it, you stated, the raci racism experienced by Black Americans is not a political issue. And to anyone who tries to use it as one on the left or the right, I say shame on you. No longer should our communities be pieces in a grand chess game. For your average person, while I know that you're saying that this should not be a political issue, it feels and seems and appears very much to be a political issue. Why? What has happened that the life of human beings has actually become something that is so political? Well, I think, first of all, you need to understand the nature of politics the nature of politics is to get to 50 plus one to win. 
Yeah. So what you have to do is uh, engage people, motivate them, get them riled up. And at right. the end of the day, um, there are some issues that are so emotional that people use those issues for emotional reasons. Um, having been involved in racial reconciliation uh, for now for over 50 years, I have come to the conclusion that, first of all, um, you know, we've done a fairly good job in this country with changing the laws so that it is illegal to have racial discrimination and and you know we we have made great progress there that's one of the things i love about this country is that we have the systems in place in order to uh, assure um that uh, we have equality and justice but the problem is a heart problem even though the laws have changed that little kid who called my grandson the N-word uh, last year, has a heart problem. Um, that uh, individual who yelled at my husband and me has a heart problem. That's not a political issue. You can't have a political or a policy change to make that happen. And, and by the way, I believe that's why we as Christians sort of have to take the lead on this one. Uh, and if we can't figure out how to do it in our own churches and in our own communities, then God help us for the rest of the country. Uh, we have got to demonstrate through our relationships what it looks like and that it can be done and to uh, to to help people understand what it means to have a transformational change in Christ. Uh, and what that looks like as it works out in our everyday lives. And I, you know, I hate to see race or any issue used for political purposes to rile up a base on the left or the right. Um, this really is a heart issue. And we will solve it as we have conversations with our friends, our coworkers in our neighborhoods, as we are intentional about it in our churches. And I think that's where um, the problem will eventually and ultimately get solved. And I think that's why, you know, we at the Heritage Foundation recognize, even with an issue like coronavirus, quite frankly, um, there is a role for government, federal, state, and local. Mm -hmm. But most of the problems that we have will be solved by civil society. They will be solved by those institutions that are in our community, community organizations, churches, nonprofits. Uh, that's where the real work will get done. Government can and should pass laws, which they actually have done. And now the work is up to us. In our final moments together, uh, I want to zoom way out because if your perspective on on two issues I think would be incredibly helpful for us. The first is that you are a leading conservative voice and leader. You have worked alongside uh, many presidents and you, though, say things, even probably in this interview, that may not fully align with every belief of your own party. And so um, here's my question. I think all of us 
in some way have to reconcile the truth that our beliefs don't always fit nicely into a little political box. Um, can you teach us how we can not grow apathetic to politics, even when we don't really fully agree with some of the people that are leading us? Well, you know, we know biblically, uh, and we are instructed to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So what is Caesar's? Hmm. What kind of government do we live under, and what is our responsibility to it? And our founders told us in no uncertain terms that they had given us a republic if we could keep it. Now, what is required of us as people of God who live in this wonderful, incredible nation? We not only render our taxes, but we are told that for our form of government to work, we must be engaged and we must be informed. And that doesn't mean getting your opinions from Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. It really means for our country to work, we have an obligation to really study, know, and understand the issues and be engaged. And our founders also told us that the pieces that they put in place, the thing that makes this country so unique and so exceptional is the gift that we have been given in terms of our founding documents and our founding principles. America is an ideal. And every single day, I get to get up and help America live up to that ideal. So we are not a perfect nation, but we are in the process of becoming a better union. And so we have a responsibility, I believe, as God's people and as Christians to be engaged in our government, to be engaged in the political process. And being apathetic or disengaged is not an option. Hmm. Finally, you have lived through the civil rights movement, wars, multiple presidents, a lot of, uh, a lot of ups and downs in our country. And you have a unique vantage point, I think, to the history that is being made right now. I'm curious what you would say to a, you know, a, a 23-year-old who is listening and trying to reorient themselves and make some sort of sense of the crazy times that we live in. <laughs> well, first <laughs> of all, I would assume that your audience may be largely Christian, and I would say God has not left mm -hmm. the universe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He is still in charge, yeah. and we can yeah. take great peace in, in that. The other thing I would say is I have lived long enough to see the cycles I lived through the 60s. For 50 years, I have been saying violence in the streets and chaos does not work. And I have seen the riots before. Um, I have seen the social unrest. Um, and I just think that right now, during this cycle, hopefully we have the opportunity to get it right and to make progress. Um, and our country, our country, please understand that one of the things that is so, so exciting to me about living in this time is that uh, we have the opportunity with the incredible country God has given us uh, and the mechanisms are in place to fix it and to get it right. So step into the moment, step into this moment and uh, use the gift that we have been given to make a better country, to make a better America, and to realize how privileged we are uh, to live here. I think sometimes that 23-year-old 
doesn't have enough global experience to understand the unique gift of America that they've been given. Well, my deepest thanks to both Mrs. James as well as you for taking time out of your day to be a part of a thoughtful conversation. If you want to learn more about Mrs. James and her work, you can head to the Gloucester Institute website or the Heritage Foundation website. Both of those websites are on our show notes. If you have not done so yet, if you could take a moment and rate and review The New Activist on Apple Podcasts, your five stars and encouraging words are deeply helpful. Also, you can use that as a place to recommend some future guests to us. Love reading those reviews, and it helps people find the show. The conversation that has begun here today will continue over on The New Activist, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. All of those have the same handle, New Activist Is. And we have a website, newactivist.is. I'm guessing there may be some conversation, and I look forward to participating in it with you. A huge thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. All of his music, merch, coffee merch, all that good stuff can be found at prophiphop.com. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Kay Coles James, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>